You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Content warnings for this episode may include fantasy violence, nightmares, smoking, romance, flirting, kissing, Apocalypse, environmental collapse, pollution, grief, complex and complicated relationships, interpersonal conflict, fire, gore, blood, body horror, and falling. Arc 1, Episode 9. Dreams of Fire. From Self-Eulogy of a Martyr by Connie Chong. The nightmare comes in threes. The first takes the form of Azalis Raid. Warm purple skin like unspooled drakeberry rinds, hair like a cosmic waterfall pulled into a tall, loose bun. Twin braids with soft gold jewelry framing a face both hard and kind. Soft lips, a round chin, eyes as black as night with irises, the color of sunburst. Neon pink stripes dash the corners of their eyes to the tips of their pointed ears. They wear a long-necked shirt the color of coal, with a black and gold shawl draped across their broad torso. Azalis sits thoughtfully on the Steading's front porch, watching the raptors graze. It is second twilight, and the sky is pink with clouds. The fireflies hang low, lazy circles around the sweet grass. Springtails dance in the rich black earth beneath the cottage. The lights of the city are barely visible through the eventide mist, winking in the darkness like so many precious gems. The smell of prickle-gourd nectar drifts through an open window, sweetening the air. It's Dom's turn to cook, thank the gods, and everyone's looking forward to it. Azalis takes a long, thoughtful drag on their pipe. The smoke is berry purple, the same color as your hair. It's a habit they borrowed from Piera, a habit that leaves their clothes smelling like ripe pongcot. On the porch, Azalis regards you. They're somewhere between masculine and feminine tonight. They look so brilliantly alive. It's gonna rain in an hour. We should bring the raptors in soon. Just stay here for just a, a minute longer. Let me enjoy it. <laughs> Rains are coming slower and slower every year, it feels like. Uh, you're just... Zainan was lost in it for a minute, but I think catches himself before he can say, you're just imagining things. It, we should, you're right, we should probably bring him in. <laughs> what about letting us enjoy this moment for a second? And Azalis tears their gaze away from the grazing rafters and gives you a cheeky smile. Zainan suddenly loses himself again in the moment and lunges towards Azalis, their intoxicating smell not the only thing drawing him closer. The two of you kiss. There's a moment as you're shrouded by this thick berry purple smoke that smells so sweet, almost sweeter than the scent of prickle gourd nectar coming through the window. Then Azalis kind of leans back on the porch, rests a square shoulder against one of the pieces of timber holding up the front awning, and regards you with a kind of sideways smirk. <laughs> Always so eager, Zai. You know, that's what I like about you. You make it easy. I wasn't always this eager. <laughs> I find that hard to believe, sharpshooter you. 
I take a look at what I'm aiming at first. And what do you see? Do you like it? Most beautiful star in the sky. <laughs> Sweet talker, you. Learn from the best. Azalise's eyes glimmer, and they lean in again. The two of you share an intimate moment on the porch, and when you pull away, you hear a distant low roll of thunder coming across the horizon. Not enough to scare the raptors. Honestly, the raptors don't really scare at anything, but it is enough to threaten rain in the next couple minutes, maybe hour if you're lucky. Doesn't seem to bother Ozl, though. And they actually turn to face you as they break apart a bit, as though reading your face. <sighs> you know the rain's never bothered me, right? This place is so full of it. So much rain, so much water. The lake, too. Marvelous, like a mirror under heaven. Hmm. I love this place. I'm glad you find this place like home. Means a lot. Hmm. <laughs> What's that thing Dawn always says? Home isn't a place, it's the people? Yeah, sentimental. <laughs> Big softy he is. Throws a mean right hook, though. Yeah, trust me, I know. And I think Ozzel reaches a slender hand and touches a bruise that's halfway healed on your jaw from a sparring session <laughs> with Dom the other day. Hmm, you still favor the rifle, don't you? I was made for it. <laughs> still, it's cute to see you struggle in the mud with him. <laughs> it's more fun than it is helpful. <laughs> but that's the point of living, isn't it, Zai? Fun. Piera would say it's money, scrap. Dom would say it's taking care of the people around us. But really, I think it's more simple than that. It's the pleasure of it all. Zainan freezes for a minute, gets lost in those beautiful sunbursts that stare back at him. It's who you're with. It's being here. <laughs> and Ozzel laughs, right? This little chuckle that gurgles like a brook in their throat. But the way they look at you, it's not just them who has entranced you. You've also entranced them. They trace their finger against the crook of your jaw, playing over a little bit of the stubble that's starting to show. Ah, <sighs> farm boy. <laughs> You've made such a nice home with us, haven't you? You all make a wonderful home. <laughs> I do have a question for you, though, Zai. Is there anything you want more of? Time. It's never enough of it. <laughs> but that's what makes these moments precious, isn't it? Because we know it's going to end someday. Don't give me that look, Sai. I mean it in a nice way. Everything's gotta end. Nothing stays the same. That tree over there, small the first time we met. <laughs> now it's twice as tall as you. And one day, it's gonna turn to dust too. That's not so bad, right? It'll have lived a nice life. When they say dust, the soft skin of a farm boy, unmarked and unscarred, shifts to scars for just a second. But he's in the dream and everything's fine. I'm not in a hurry for that part. You know me, I'd rather savor the sweet things. Another thing I like so much about you. Piero's always looking forward. Sometimes I feel Dom always has one boot stuck in the past. But you, you are so brilliantly present all the time. Gotta stay here to guard the herd, you know. Be with the people you're with. Hmm. The first few drops of rain start to patter onto the rich, dark soil around you. The smell of humidity starting to rise. We hear some chittering in the near distance from the raptors as some of them continue to graze, but others flick their feathers and kind of scrape their talons against the ground, wanting to go back in. And Azo cocks their head at you and says, Hmm, now you are the raptor boy. But I've been watching you. I bet I can get more in than you. Oh, you bet? Mm-hmm. And he reaches to his side, puts on a familiar hat, and jumps to his feet, but offers a hand. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, Ozel stands up, takes the hand very like, oh, like, thank you, gentlemen. And then they kind of use that as momentum to dash past you, <laughs> like take take the lead. And they start running with like a laugh, a very graceful stride uh, as their boots kind of start to thud over this mud that's forming from this fresh rain falling down. Zainan whoops very loudly, even over the rolling skies and begins to run laughing. Yeah, yeah, there's a moment as you're just running and laughing in the rain, you approach the raptors, and I think with how you're moving, you start to herd them back in toward the barn, right? Like a couple of them don't want to go, but you're able to kind of like get them in. They spook a bit and they start like with their two talons uh, pounding against this rain slick earth. And there's a moment as you and Ozzel together fence them into the barn. Uh, And now we find just the two of you out in this rainy, slightly muddy, fresh and warm summer downpour. Uh, Nothing around you, but just nature and grass. Uh, and leaves and weeds and the raptors kind of snorting and snuffling in the bar nearby. Zainan, still laughing, definitely muddy at this point, very wet, runs to Azal. I think you got me this time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Azal lets out a giggle. They turn, they kind of like dodge your lunge playfully, but then they turn around and kind of pin you from behind. Uh, And I think they send both of you... uh, onto the ground where like mud kicks up in this flurry as rain continues to pour down on both of you. And you're now just both kind of like laughing, right? And like roughhousing a little bit with each other. But there's a moment as, you know, the two of you are rolling around and I want you to tell me, Zainan, which one of you ends up on top. Oh, Alzal wins every time. Oh yeah, yep. You roll and then boom. Your shoulders are against this, like, slick, soft earth. Ozzel on top of you, like, smiling Mm. down at you. Their hair slightly undone from the braids that frame their face, right? That top kind of bun also a little loose. A couple of the wisps uh, trailing down from their neck as rain continues to pour. And this is like a nice, soft, fresh, sweet rain. It's humid summer rain that feels so nice and, and refreshing against your skin. And they're smiling down at you. And everything is lush and everything is growing. Everything is alive and they lean down and they kiss you and the rain falls and the rain falls and the rain falls and the dust falls and the dust falls beads of water turning to dry granules of sand and ash that just flutter in the wind and nothing is alive and nothing is wet and brimming with life and everything is desiccated. And you are no longer on the ground, you are standing on the porch, lodestar steading at your back. And Ozzel is there, and their smile is gone, and they are in front of you, and dust is everywhere. The raptors are gone, they have been gone for years, the last bone of it bleached to ash. The grass is gone as well. There hasn't been grass in weeks, days, months, years, it feels like. There hasn't been rain and, well, Ozzo with their pack slung over their back. Ozzo with their hair now long and slightly shaggy, but still calloused in that way that only they can pull off. Ozzo pinning you with those sunburst eyes that now droop with so much sadness. I'm trusting you, Zainan. Take care of our home. Take care of our family. But I have to go. You don't... You don't have to do this. You can just... You can just stay. You can just stay. Please. I'm sorry. Azal tilts their head to the side, and that grief wells in their eyes. They take a step toward you. They raise up a hand. They cup you on your stubbled cheek. I'm sorry too, Zai. But you know I can't stay. You know I have to go. Come back. Take care of this place, Zai. Promise me. Promise me. You know I can't do anything else. Take care of our home. And Ozzo leans in to kiss you. And Zainan, even though his jaw is 
tense like stone. He melts into that kiss and the dust gathers in the tears that begin to fall. And those tears are the only spot of wet, of rain, of water, that pool now between the two of you that your home has known in years. Ozzo turns, they walk faster than you thought possible. They are gone, the silhouette of them shadowy, swept up in this howling gale of swirling dust. There's just dust now. There are no leaves, no springtails, no verdancy, no green, no pink, no blues, just this gray, brown, colorless, lifeless, bleached, blanched dust. And Ozzel vanishes into it. And the dust howls and your heart howls and the dust howls. And you see a table a desk, a familiar one. You see shelves materializing in shadowy silhouettes from the dust, books about arithmetic, books about prayer, scrolls and scrolls of divine sutras. And Naim, angrily and coldly, quickly and efficiently, throwing your things into a bag behind this desk in the middle of this Howling dust storm, two memories bleeding into each other like interwoven fabrics from separate tapestries. The dust, Naeem's office, Naeem's office, the dust. He seems unbothered, or perhaps he doesn't even notice it swirling around him. He thumps this pack onto his desk where it rattles with a solid thud. <sighs> Anything else in here? I don't want to end up with a stray boot I have to pick up after you. Uh, and Zynan looks around and the person that's supposed to be in this room is so not here and he still hears the promise to Azal to take care of the home. But this is not that home. This is a different home. This is home, but not home. But then he remembers this argument. And he thinks he did get everything. Wouldn't want to have that awkward walk down the hall again. Yeah, that that's everything. That's everything. But you... You don't have to... I can... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying. <sighs> Naeem lets out a familiar, exasperated sound. And as you step fully into this memory, dream memory. The walls bleed around you, penning in the dust, forming four walls and a ceiling, and yet the dust continues to blow. It covers the shelves. It starts to filter into this open satchel on the table in front of you, and yet it is just background noise. Neither of the two of you acknowledge it. That exasperated noise filters past Naeem's lips, kind of Puffs out, leans, takes a moment to take you in. Anything else? So you're not... Come on, go ahead, say it. Say what you have been wanting to say for the past few days since we decided to end this again. Uh, for the past, what, few months since we decided to end this again? Years since we decided to end this again? What do you want to say, Zai? No. What do you want to say that will finally be enough, finally be on time? I'm trying, okay, I'm trying, and this is- You're trying. Yeah, I'm trying. I've tried, and I've tried, and and the person you want me to be is not a real person, Naeem. No one does that. The person I want you to be? The person I want you to be? Did you seriously just say that? What I want you to be. You're saying that to me when you gladly roll over and show belly to LSSG. Whenever they demand anything of They you. need me. And what about me? You don't need me. You're off climbing the ladder, doing whatever you're... Doing your stuff. I... Listen. I'm not made for that world. The limitations you impose on yourself, Zai, are so desperately frustrating to watch. What you think is a prison I'm trying to impose on you is actually an open door. But you never open doors, do you? 
You never rise to what you could be because I see what you could be and- And what the hell do you think I could be? Cause I'm doing my best. A good man, Zynan. I think you could be an actually good man who shows up in a real way, who opens up, not just to me, but to everyone you pretend to mentor in LSSG. I see wasted potential. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not fucking perfect. I, oh my God. And angrily, he starts just like renewing, stuffing things into the duffel that you're pretty sure maybe you don't even own, but he's just, just shoving it in. Zynan can't even stop him. As all the stuff goes into the bag and they're clearly just grabbing random objects at this point, Zynan just seethes and his fists clench. And his boot just drags over the floor. You done? Yes. And Naeem zips it up violently, so hard that you feel the zipper might fall off, but it doesn't. Kind of like nudges the duffel in your direction. I'll be seeing you, Naeem. And Zynan walks forward, puts a hand on the bag, and just picks the whole thing up. It's heavier than he expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you pick it up, turn around, like sling it over a shoulder and start to leave. Right as you are at the threshold, Naeem says, that's it? So you're really just going to leave and let me leave. Again, that's it. You're not even going to try to stop me? I have tried. You don't want me, that's fine. You don't, you haven't, you're not. You think that just lashing out at me and expecting me to take care of your own unfiltered, repressed fucking emotions is trying? That's not trying. You don't actually ever listen. You just bleed. And I'm the one left with it all over my hands. Well, I'm sorry I'm such a fucking problem for you. Stop saying that. Stop calling yourself a fuck up. Stop saying you're not perfect. Stop saying, don't give me those fucking puppy dog eyes like you're some kicked. I've never wanted you to be perfect, Zai. I've only ever just wanted you to be there. I thought I was. I'm happy for you. I'll see you around. And as you step past the threshold, you hear Naeem say behind you, just kind of under his breath, but it still cuts in. Always too little. Always too late. You start to step into the hallway, but you bump into a bossy. Uh. What the hell, what the are, hell you are you doing here? Wait a minute. You don't... The second nightmare takes the form of Cove. Broad-shouldered, black-haired, green-eyed Cove. Wearing her usual intricate heavy plate armor the color of midnight. A great sword rests across her back. She stands beside you in the training hall. Arms crossed, emerald gaze fixed on your sister. Sing dances across the arena, longsword flashing alabaster hair flowing with effortless grace. The hands of fate watch from the sidelines, taking notes on floating tablets, nodding deeply with approval. Also on the sidelines are this year's crop of field agent hopefuls, young 20-somethings with so much to prove. There's Nafisa Wen, straight-backed and focused, Sumali, her tail wagging with anxious energy, Miat with their starry robe, Huanung, Ash, and so many others whose names aren't important right now. There is also Cove, who has always been more popular, more liked, more noble than you. And of course, there's you. Seer, you and Cove watch your sister slash through this demonstration like it's nothing. Like you haven't been spending countless secret nights doing practice demos just to work off your nerves. Like you haven't always lagged behind her a second slower, a pound weaker. Like you haven't always had to work twice as hard to get half the progress she does. Cove looks at your sister the way everyone looks at your sister, like she's a little bit in love with her. But there's something heavier there too. Something that threatens to pull Sing out of your orbit and into Cove's. 
and as Sing flashes her longsword forward, Cove addresses you without looking away from Sing. How about a friendly wager, Sayer? Sayer had his eyes fixed on Sing's movements, and those bright, striking orbs flash over the cove. His hair, cropped and short, curls barely noticeable underneath the shaggy mess upon his head. And he just looks inquisitively over at Cove and says, I'm kind of wager. So, your sister is special. Duh, everyone knows it. She's fate's chosen. She's the sun. And everyone who's close to her gets to feel that divine warmth. Gets to shine, too. But here's the thing, Sayer. I don't mean this personally, so don't take it that way, but you're not the one. You're not the one. You've already had your chance to stand by Sing's side, and that's only honestly because you're bound by blood. But things are changing, Sayer. This demonstration is the first step. See, we're gonna get our strike team assignments real soon, and Sing's gonna be on a team that actually deserves her. So here's my wager. I bet that one day, Sing's gonna realize that you're worse than her shadow. You're a millstone around her neck, holding her back. And when she realizes that, I bet she's gonna choose me to be the knight that stands by her side, not you. Again, no offense. Have you ever felt like the wick of a lighter? When the spark finally hits you and only heat and friction exists, there's a heat that exudes out of, say, radiating first from his, from his tattoo of the, of the moon upon his chest. And he turns his full form towards Cove and says, Who the fuck do you think you are? You, Cove, are Sing's flavor of the week. And now you've decided that that momentary gaze, that transfiction, owes you the biggest britches here in trans? Well, before you put those on, make sure you fit. Bond of blood, it's more than that. I am formed within the same stuff she is made from. I'm not just bound to her by blood. I am her brother. I am her moon. And you, you know what, Cove? You know fucking what? You, you believe yourself so important. My sister is too kind-hearted, too warm, tender, bleeding-hearted to say this, so I'll say it for her, all right? You are not worthy. You will never be worthy because I have lived countless days, countless nights with her. You know nothing about her. And for as long as I live and draw breath in this body, I will never leave her side. I know that disappoints you, but remember, Cove, I will never let bottom-feeding glory hunters near my sister. There's a round of applause as Sing finishes her demonstration. She kind of like does a flourish, right? Everyone claps and all three hands of fate look very pleased. Cove stands there still as a statue, face unreadable, looking at you. There's clear tension. You could literally cut it in the air with a blade. And then Han Wuyin says, That was fantastic, Sing! You know, we're not supposed to give out scores right now, but can I get a 10 out of 10? Lucy? Artemis? No? Okay. Well, 10 out of 10 from me. Uh, very good. Next in the list is going to be Sayer. Sayer gives Cove another once over his eyes looking up and down and 
As he gives Cove that final glance, he says, I hope I made my point clear. And the fate of your useless wager. And Sayer will uh, tighten these wraps around his hands. And you can finally see it now, his, his smaller form before he grew into the bulwark that he is. And he picks up his crescent blades and sheaths them by his side and makes his way to the arena. You take a few steps into the arena as Sing, a little bit slick with sweat, like comes off to the sidelines, immediately swarmed by adorers. You step into the arena. As you're maybe three steps shy of the center to begin, you hear Cove call out to you from the sidelines in a voice only you can hear. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess hit dogs holler, huh? You'd know something about being a worthless disappointment, wouldn't you? The world goes silent. His chest is ablaze. His arms are ablaze, cindering cloth into ash. His uniform is on fire. And all Sayer can say in this moment is shuts up oh, and turns around to face off with Cove, but something snaps beyond his control, beyond his grasp. But Sayer doesn't get to snap like a normal person. He snaps into a flaming hurricane as bursting out from his tattoo, bolts of fire burn out of him, crackling with obsidian electricity as it spins out in an uncontrollable blaze towards Cove, the target of his anger. A massive tornado of pure destructive magical force explodes from your sternum from that tattoo. It just shoots forward. You can't control it. As soon as it leaves your body, you know it's going to kill her and there's no way to stop it. You can't rein it in. It's heading for her. It's moving too quickly for anyone to react. It's so fast in that split second between thought to synapse. You know Cove is going to die by your hand. And Cove knows it too. As this blazing hurricane with jagged knives of black electricity hurtles toward her, she stands there on the sidelines and her eyes go wide. Those emerald eyes go so wide and there is a look of pure terror on her face. The expression that people wear when they know they're headed for death and there's nothing they can do about it. Absolutely nothing. She doesn't even have the time, the reaction time to lift up a hand to brace against it. The hurricane is upon her. There's a flash of golden bracers, a twinge of golden eyes, a flap of a sash, and an explosion. A sonic boom explodes from this point of contact, so massive and destructive, it flings you back, I think. It flings you back. It also flings everyone else back who was on the sidelines, and a huge kind of bomb of, of dust and smoke and debris boom, explodes. Chunks of arena floor go flying. Just huge chunks of floor bigger than people. There are cracks, fissures, spider webbing through the ground. The ceiling is shaking, even though there's no roof. It's just uh, like a starry night sky. The stars are vibrating with violent force. And there's just a huge thick plume of smoke everywhere. Smoldering cinders as well. It smells like burning, pure destruction. Sayer, where you are, tumbled onto the ground, I think your own magic had hurt you when it was blasted back outward. There's little bits of bruising, singe marks, scorch marks on your body. There's confusion. You can hear people shouting, just confused, chaotic noises. The smoke starts to clear. You see, standing in front of Cove, who's hunkered down, crouched with her hands held up frightfully in front of her head, is Hand Artemis. She's just standing there, completely uninjured, completely unchanged. There's not a single mark on their body. 
just standing there, bracers glinting along their forearms, golden eyes cutting into you, the only thing you can see in the smoke, nothing else. In the distance, you see the forms of Lucy, Hand Lucy, taking a step toward Artemis with a hand half outstretched, and you also see Hand Buyan stepping forward, his huge, pauldroned, muscular, armored form, as he unsheaths the Guandao strung along his back, and the jade blade of it erupts into emerald fire. He starts to point it in your direction. But Artemis holds up a hand, looking at you, takes a step forward, and says, What the hell are you doing here? And it's not Artemis anymore, it's Abasi. And Sayer looks at his hands, larger than they were before, not as frail and frightened, and looks up at Abasi and he goes, What? What are you doing? You too? That's the third of you that... The third nightmare takes the form of Amaru Hendrix. Long, golden twists frame an elegant face like coils of sunlight. Orient piercings glimmer in the frantic shadows of the clock tower. Amaru gasps against the floorboards, his dark skin blanched with shock. Savior, their golden lance, lies scattered uselessly to the side. Haloed by the midnight sun pouring through the massive clock face is the Hell Warden. It rears onto its hind hooves and bellows, the mouth on its muscled chest brimming with teeth. Cove roars back. She raises her greatsword and charges. Next to her, Naim dashes his brush against Sutra paper, the prayers flying forward like wafer-thin birds. The warden shreds half of these birds in a flurry of fangs and claws, but the rest get through, flinging themselves against his four claws and freezing him in place, just in time for Cove to leap into the air and slash her greatsword down. As the fight rages on, Amaru gurgles on the floor, turning pale with every passing second. His right arm is shredded, exposing thin white strings of tendons, dark red pools of flesh, and strikingly, an ulna, the color of gold. You've never seen bones so beautiful before. They don't even look organic. They look divine, as though crafted from the hands of angels themselves. But there's no time to waste. Amaru is going into shock, and you are Strike Team Phoenix's reliable medic. Lumira, how do you attempt to heal Amaru's wound? Lumira immediately goes into action mode. She tourniquets the arm by ripping a section of her robes off. Uh, and in the meantime, she's also like trying to keep them awake trying to keep them conscious as she tries her hardest to staunch the blood. And while she, when she gets it to a point to where it's ceasing for a little bit, she's desperately digging through uh, the pockets in her robes. She's looking for her gum. She can't find it or did it, did she, use it before when she helped Cove. She can't remember, but she's desperately reaching through her pockets and she's like, I need you to stay calm, stay here. And I honestly don't even care what it was that we were fighting about earlier. I don't care. I will, we'll get you right. And I'll I'll move in. It's not. I'll move in with you. It's not that big of a deal. And uh-huh. she's just frantically digging through her pockets, trying to find the one thing that she knows she needs. And when she realizes that there is no more, the second the spot that she keeps it in, she did use the last of it on Cove. She does not have any more. And she freezes. And for a second, it looks 
like she herself went into shock for a second. She's not sure what else she she can do. And she's, I don't, I can't, I don't have any more, I. Uh, Lumira, Lou. And Amaru painfully reaches up their left hand and kind of grabs you tightly around her wrist, breathing very heavily. He's clearly in a lot of pain. The Hell Warden strikes are imbued with curse magic. It's rotting away his flesh as you speak. But still, he's staying conscious somehow. Every other ally on this plane has immediately fallen unconscious with a single blow. He's still conscious, looks at you, gripping you hard. I don't, I don't fucking care about the fight right now. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I was, we were I was trying I just, to think of something else. I was trying to think no, of something listen, else. Listen, 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 listen. Lou, Lou, you don't need it. Okay, you don't need it. You don't need the gum. You don't need the stabilizing gum. You don't need it, okay? You can do this. You can, ah, you can do this, okay? Look, you're so fucking smart. No, you don't. You don't. Look at me. Look at me. And Amaru demands that you look at him. Do you look at him? Yeah, she will. She will. There is nothing but full trust in his gaze. You can do it, okay, Lumira? You're so goddamn smart. It's infuriating. You can do it. All right? You don't need the gum. Please, Lumira, I need you. Please. Uh, I don't... Okay, you're right, and I know this, I know this. And she will go through her everyday practice steps of trying to heal this wound, sans her stabilizing gum. Mm. What does it look like as you attempt to staunch the damage? So what happens is, is she tries her hardest to gather all of the shredded pieces back into uh, some form or shape of what their arm was supposed to look like. And she is consistently muttering under her breath incantation. She's, he's, lost so much blood at this point. She's using some of it to kind of seal spots and places to where it was that they were supposed, the flesh is supposed to sinew back together. And she's, and it doesn't even look like she's putting forth any effort because she's done it so many times at this point. It's second nature. It's like breathing. It's like blinking to her. Mm. Um, And she falls directly into the moment. She's a combat medic. She knows this and is going through just trying to put all the pieces back together and align what she can that's left of it. She notes the gold bones and we'll ask questions about that later but now is not the time uh Mm. and just is trying her damnedest to Mm. to put this semblance back back together what color is your magic lumira's magic is this very it's gold it's it's shimmery it's like sunlight it's like a sunrise almost Mm. it's bright it's effervescent it glitters it's just almost otherworldly in its presentation this golden beautiful sunbeam of magic begins to shimmer uh, in a halo around Amaru's arm and instantly Amaru's breathing starts to even out. You get the feeling that this is already removing pain from him as the first step. And then you see as you're just like methodically, like surgically remembering how 
like flesh attaches to bone. You, we see like tendons begin to restring themselves, right? We see plates and strips of muscle start to reband themselves over the golden bone, covering it up. We see where puddled blood had oozed onto the ground, almost seems to like squick back into the wound. It like reverses trajectory and goes into uh, the arm. We see blood vessels starting to suture themselves back up together. And then Amaru's arm is whole again, right? Like it's no longer ripped apart. It's just like, completely uninjured. And there's a moment as it's glowing that Amaru looks up at you and goes, ah, I knew you could... Lamira. Uh, wrong? And we see the arm begin to wither. The skin starts to wrinkle and shrink and contract around the muscle. We see varicose veins start to pop up across the back of his hands and fingers. And we see those fingernails start to elongate. Wait, no, it's just the flesh around them shrinking down, shrinking down, 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 vacuum sealing. We see the flesh, the skin crumble off of his forearm and turn to dust around him. And he is screaming. Amaru is screaming and he is gasping as tendon and flesh and skin and nail wither to nothing. And there's just that golden radiant ulna and radius and those cartilage-like skeletal fingers poking out. It's just metacarpal and, and skeleton hands and that's it. It's just bone, it's just skeleton. Everything else has withered to nothing. And Amaru is screaming and screaming and screaming. Lumira, <laughs> ah! what's happening? What? Yeah, I, 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 I just, I, I didn't know what to do. I just, I was supposed to, that's, that's not right. I didn't, I didn't. Uh, not. What do you bring it back, bring it back. She, she's trying everything that she knows to do to like try to reassemble the arm back again that's that's not how it works and she's it's like words are getting caught in her throat as she's trying to talk out loud to herself what Mm. the steps are supposed to be happening and and trying to make sense of it but the only thing that is like coherently coming across is that's not how this is supposed to go that's not how this is supposed to that's not supposed to that is crash there is a huge shattering noise as cove dashes her greatsword forward and the hell warden smashes through the the watch face of the clock tower backward, uh, glass shards just exploding in a fractured halo around him. And this beast lets out this bellowing roar as he falls backward out of the tower. Cove's blade is pulled back slick with this sick amber liquid, turns around, eyes wide at the scene in front of her, you and Amaru, and Naeem turns around as well, and instantly the other members of Strike Team Phoenix are by your side, right? And Naeem is putting like an arm around your shoulders as you're like shaking. I think you're in shock, right? You're, you're frantically just like kneeling there and you can hear Naeem's voice in your ear go, Lumira, Lumira, it's okay, it's okay. We're done with our mission. We're coming back to trance, just step away, okay? Amaru, Amaru, Cove, and Cove is uh, going, yeah, got it. I'm calling up the Oracle. Uh, and it's like holding up her hand and we see Strike Phoenix's Oracle start to appear as Amara is kind of writhing on the ground. And Lumira, you've been told by Naeem to step away, take a moment, take a breath, right? And this is how it goes. Yes, Lumira, this is how it went. Naeem took care of everything, took control of the situation. The Oracle was called up. You were returned back to trance. There were months of recovery, weeks of not talking, months of not talking, but everything was fine. Everything was fine. How does your magic explode out of you in this moment, Lumira? I think what happens, honestly, is it almost looks as if there's this it's an outline of her body itself in that same shimmery gold magic that steps from Lumira's corporeal body and gets larger and larger until it bursts and it covers everything. 
but as it's falling and settling to the ground, everything stops. The birds in the sky that were flying by, the branches and leaves that were falling from trees, freeze in midair. Everyone is still for just a moment before everything warps back into present time. Mm. Yeah, this ochre shimmer covers everything as like we see even like the shards of glass falling from outside the watchtower. We see the hellward and and like freeze in midair as he's plummeting. We see Naeem also freeze as he's starting to turn to look at you. We see Cove and the Oracle freeze mid-summon. Just a shimmer of magic, the Oracle hasn't corporealized yet. We see Amaru freeze mid-thrash on the ground. And then, poof, like this like golden light vanishes, uh, rippling outward from you as well. And everything starts moving fast again. But everything is wrong, Lumira. This isn't what actually happened next or was it or could it have been what's happening as you see Naeem's eyes widen, Cove's eyes widen, Amaru's eyes widen, and the skin turns to dust from their bones and the muscle sloughs into nothing and it's just skeleton. Amaru is just a pure golden skeleton on the ground. Cove is just a skeleton wielding a great sword. Naeem is just a skeleton standing there desperately holding a slip of sutra paper. It's dead silence from her. I think all you hear is like her sharp, quickened, short, panicked breaths as she's trying to impede a panic attack from coming on, like trying to mitigate it before it starts. Flickering on the periphery of your vision movement. What is that? And I think bursting out from over in the corner, right from outside her periphery is it's too bright to even for her eyes to even focus on it's blinding it's dark it's a circle erupting from the wooden floorboards of the clock tower is the eclipse it shatters everything around you not to dust not to ash but simply to nothingness. It looks like a hole punched through the fabric of reality, just a plate of pure circular shadow. It erupts out of the floorboards and it takes the place of the shattered watch face of the clock tower. It hovers there like a black hole incarnate and we see the skeletons of Strike Team Phoenix elongate, stretch, and then vanish into the eclipse. We now see the floorboards themselves, the actual structure of the clock tower also beginning to stretch toward the eclipse and vanish into it. Everything around you is being pulled toward it and vanishing. The clock tower is gone. You're floating there in midair. The world of the plane around you, the trees, the birds, the midnight sun behind this eclipse all begin to gravitate toward it. And as they do, it seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You're not sure if reality is hovering toward it or if it is simply subsuming reality or if there is really no difference between these two concepts at all. And then the drifter is by your side. It is trying to talk to you. It is shadowy. It is glitching. It is trying to speak and you hear it say, Lumira? And it's Abasi. And her eyes are wide. You too? Lumira drops to her knees and just screams like, blood-curdling. She just screams. The earth is black with soot and oil and ash and dead fire. The darkness is everywhere. It is in the trunks that loom as wide as buildings, as tall as mountains, with roots the size of rivers and fungus-crusted hollows that reek of death. 
It is in the air. The frightened, thorn-choked air that sings of spoiled creserin and furnace and rot. It is in the dirt, the cursed dirt, the dirt that once fed and now decays. Zainan Seir, Lumira, Abasi, and Sing. The five of you stand at the bottom of the world, staring up at a forest older than history itself. The forest has been murdered, and its blood is black as oil. The forest is alive, and it is furious, and it is bloodthirsty. The forest is afraid, and it is too proud to beg for mercy. Exploding from the earth, larger than the world itself, is the dragon. A writhing serpent made of pure black oil, with massive spines protruding from its back. No, not spines. Skyscrapers, radio towers, oil rigs, superhighways, jutting from its wet obsidian scales like bones sinking out of tar. Sayer. To you, these structures feel familiar. They ping against a memory in a vine-soaked temple, a vision of erupting earth, an omen of buildings collapsing. What one thing do each of you do as you stand in the shadow of this dragon in a nightmare that does not belong to any of you? Let's start with Zynan. Zynan can still feel that duffel bag that was in his hand, and he goes to drop it but he's holding his rifle. And he raises it up and tries to get in position and hold his arm back. Mm, mm. As you do, as you fling your arm out, we pan to your side to see Sayer. What one thing do you do? Sayer's form was still young and a 19, 20 year old, the cusp of manhood, just watching as his hair elongate and turn shaggy and messy and curly and his eyes are wide, standing at the dripping of oil upon this dragon. And all he could feel is this pull, that fiery pull, and he's just clutching. He hears everyone around him, but it all mutes away as he's clutching against his chest and it's just shaking his head. Keep it in, keep it in, keep it in. This is bad. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to set anyone else on fire. Not like that again. And he's just hunkering down, feeling that heat from his chest and that pull and just closes in on himself. We pan to your side to find Lumira. What one thing are you doing at the bottom of the world? Contrary to her typical fashion, Lumira pulls her robes closer to her and steps back. Doesn't say anything, doesn't... Her eyes still look lost and far off, like she's still having a hard time deciphering what part is dreamish, if she was dreaming at all, or if this is reality. She steps back. As you step back, Sing and Abasi step forward. At the same time, simultaneously, both of them looking up at this writhing oil serpent, Sing's pink eyes wide, Abasi's brow furrowed, and these two people say at the same time but in different tones, Sing says, you again, and Abasi says, you again, and they startle, look at each other, and then the dragon opens its mouth and everything erupts into flame. These flames are nothing like Sayers. They are as red as blood, red as murder, red as hatred. The trees burn, and they scream as they burn, and the leaves burn, and they scream as well, and the roots burn, and the soil burns, and the air burns, and burns, and burns, and you wake up. Are you a proud transplanered? Do you want everyone to know you're an Endake University alum? 
Do you want to wear our logo but super goth and full of Void? Then check out our brand new merch collab with Void Merch and nab one of three exclusive designs. Check out the link in the episode description and go trans your gender with our fresh new threads. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Charles, Cora Eckert, Brooke Bright, River, Chiacres, Lex Slater, Scrofasis, Hat, Alex, Mark J, Lyle and Peanut, Spencer, Brooke in Seattle, Aria, Derek Davidson, Phil, Jordan, Cassidy, and Rose. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!